I've had the privilege of being in and around banking for more than 50 years. Lots of changes during that time. We've gone from ledgers to laptops, typewriters to technology. One thing, however, remains the same. Banking is a people business, and I'll be talking with those people that make banking great here on Jack Rats with Modern Bankers. Welcome to Jack Rants with Modern Bankers, brought to you by RelPro and Vertical IQ. Each week I feature top voices in financial services, from bankers and consultants to best-selling authors and many more. The goal of this program is simple, to provide insights, success practices, and to bring new ideas to the table that you can use to maximize your results. My final guest of 2023 is also my first guest of 2024. It's my two-part interview with my great banking friend, Bill Fink. I've known Bill for 25 years. He's an undergrad and an MBA grad of St. Joseph University, but there's so much more. Bill is a lifetime learner with leadership, risk management, and other certificates from prestigious universities like Notre Dame, Wharton, and Stanford. If that weren't enough, he's a CPA too. Bill is EVP and head of U.S. Commercial Bank Strategic Partnerships for TD Bank. He's a regular speaker, podcast guest, and publishes three quarterly newsletters on CFO issues, the economy, and more. It's a wide-ranging conversation about the economy, interest rates, geopolitical challenges, and much more on part one with Bill Fink, on Jack Rants with Modern Bankers. Here we go. So as I mentioned in the introduction, I met Bill Fink probably 25 years ago, and uh, I view Bill as one of the top three most intelligent bankers that I know. Listen to this. The guy's a CPA, uh, and he's going to tell you a little bit more about his role, but he's also a sales guy. Um, And he goes on a lot of joint calls all around the country with his TD colleagues. Bill, it's so great to have you with us. Jack, it's an honor. I can't begin to express how pleased I am to be your guest. You've been such an important figure and I'll say an instrumental figure in my development over those last 25 years. I consider you certainly a mentor. I would say a positive critic at times to keep me focused on what we do and certainly have refined my critical thinking beyond the sales process, but to be a better banker. So let me start your holidays by saying, Thank you. And I could, from the bottom of my heart, I can't be more pleased to be a guest and to have a conversation with you. Well, me too, Bill. And and this is our last program of the year. And I couldn't think of anybody more perfect than you because you have a real handle on what's going on in banking and the economy. But as you know, I always like to start out the program with uh, tell me something good. What's going on well in your life, Bill? Well, I, I would say to you, here we are on a Monday after a, a football weekend. So I saw for you, the Bears won, and I would say the Cleveland Browns won and seem to be back on track. So I'll start, be thankful for small gifts. My mother always told me, and I'll start there. And then as I look ahead, uh, as we talk today on December 11th, Jack, I'm pleased to be able to tell you, I've got all my holiday plans, preparations done. And, you know, you talk about small gifts that continue to give. I can't be more pleased for that. And uh, I'll leave you with one I know that's near and dear to your heart. Um, My wife and I will venture over the Christmas holiday to one of my favorite places, period, 
Uh, we're going to make our way to Cooperstown, New York. And uh, yes, I'm going to walk through the hallowed halls of Baseball Hall of Fame, which gives me immense pleasure. Oh, that's great. And I know that's at least your second time because you had the opportunity to go with your dad. And as you know, uh, I took my son Adam there over the summer and it's uh, it's pretty amazing place. And Cooperstown in the over Christmas time must be beautiful. Yes, we happened to go the first time at Christmas time last year. And uh, it is. It's uh, not crowded and it is just picturesque. It's something right. off of almost like a Hallmark greeting card. Oh, that's for sure. Well, that's great. Well, Bill, as I mentioned in my introduction, you have tons of titles and tons of experience, but help help people understand your role at TD. It's a big one, and it's an important one. Yes. So like many of our large peers, we have an investment bank, TD Securities, and I have an immense amount of interaction and respect over the years for my colleagues there. And I've been on the banking side, so I've had the pleasure to be on the credit risk side. I formed our credit management function 12 years ago, led that, led middle market over the past two and a half to three quarters years. And I was tapped, Jack, as I know you're aware, to come together and bridge and build that causeway, if I could call it that, between TD Securities and TD Bank. And what that means specifically is we're looking at product, interactions, delivery, implementation for new product. So we want to maximize the customer opportunity, not just to be siloed with products of the bank, but to look at M&A advisory services, opportunities for debt capital markets, equity capital markets, foreign exchange. And I'm just touching the major areas of that iceberg, if you will and really to think differently, unlike I would say the history of our industry is there's investment banking side and there's commercial banking side. And we all strive to do better to bridge that and deliver seamlessly for our clients. And we've taken the step, given my background, credit risk, credit management, deep commercial, knowing and working with the folks at TDS over the years, uh, we've taken the initiative to put me as that person. So I head a cross-organizational operating council. I'm co-chairman of that council, and I'm the point person in the commercial bank for all activity that involves cross-organizational work with TD Securities. Well, it's a big role, Bill. And the other role that you filled over the years is as a coach and a mentor. And as I mentioned, you're a CPA, but you have a sales brain. I'm curious, how, how does that all play out? I mean, a lot of CPAs that I know are much more analytical as you are. You're so good with the numbers, but very few can bridge that gap over into the sales process. How, how did that happen? Well, I, I would say I was a banker always with that analytic skill, and it was recognized for that analytic skill. But I learned very early on that to be successful and go back early in my career, we used to describe the up and coming stars as being superstars if they could generate business, structure business, and manage a book of business. And if you could have what they refer to as three legs of the stool, if you could embrace those three legs of the stool, you were, quote, a superstar. And you know, give a little bit of context. Uh, I'm the last 
training class before Finder, Grinder, Minder emerged many years ago. And so there was a very strong emphasis on that holistic ability to do all three. And we've become very regimented today in a positive way of recognizing people's strengths and somewhat channeling them to sales, credit, credit risk, operations, et cetera. Uh, but I feel extremely fortunate to have that broad-based to be able to go out and sit in front of clients and talk about, you know, how do you make money? What drives your business? What's important to you? Uh, and always being able to ask those questions. And I, part of it's my analytic side of my my brain, that piece that never goes off. At, and I look at it, Jack. So I say to people, like, simply, how do you make money? And what I find unbelievably fascinating is we have clients in the same industry, often with the same revenue size, similar balance sheets, uh, but they're successful for different reasons. And coming to understand what they define success to be and how they make money in that process, what do they emphasize? It's just been fascinating. It's been, in my career, one of the highlights of being a banker is to be able to sit down with people in different industries and they have extended family in the business. That's a driver. Many times stability and providing employment for family at large. Other people have a different profit or economic motivation than others. And being able to sit and talk to people about that has just been totally satisfying and very fulfilling. Well, you've done a great job with it. Um, in October, you were on an ABA podcast. And you talked about hire for longer. And this will get us into our discussion about what you see going forward. Yes. What does hire for longer mean? And what do you see uh, in 2024? What's in your crystal ball? Oh, it's, it, it is the question. So this is a great segue to digging deeper into our conversation. And I think the popular press, um, and I'll say multimedia beyond press these days, is the expectation that the Fed is going to reduce interest rates, and it's been simmering for some time. And it's the question, you know, when does that happen? And I think Jerome Powell, he's got a very difficult job. I think he's signaled properly that it's going to take time. And when you look at uh, 2024, let me start, and I'll just say unequivocally, rates will come down in 2024. I'll start. I'll start there. Now the question becomes: I always get how much bill, you know, and when. And I, I say that is the essence of the discussion. And I do believe in TD Economics. My colleagues there were in communication often. We are looking at there will be beginning in the second at the pardon me the third quarter of 2024. We are expecting a and projecting a 50 basis point reduction in the third quarter. We're expecting and projecting a 50 basis point reduction in the fourth quarter. So in 2024, we are projecting a 100 basis point reduction in rates. Uh, Jack, you can go online and I follow all these things. So there's one very, very popular, uh, I'll say quasi-conometric organization that has coming down 125 to 150 basis points beginning in March. 
Uh, I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I, we believe that's optimistic and I'm optimistic for this reason. If you happen to see the, the recent release by uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and specifically annual wage growth just came out last week, annual wage growth in November was at 4%. And that is clearly down from the highs of 2022, but it doesn't support the Fed's target inflation rate of 2%. So that rate needs to come down a bit further if we're going to get close to the Fed's target rate of 2%. We don't believe that that happens based on the factors that we see at present, that the speed of the economy will not slow sufficiently by the early part of next year in order to accomplish that. Now, that is one reason why the Fed continues to hold out and doesn't say emphatically that it's done raising interest rates. The other part to that is clearly is just human sentiment mindset. As soon as they signal and they say definitively they're done raising interest rates, the natural human emotion is when are you going to cut? The risk is there will be a positive uptick when they announce that they have finished raising rates. If they do that too soon and the fundamentals are not entrenched to withstand that uptick, they could announce and we could see a resurgence of inflation. So I don't envy the job Jerome Powell has to do at all, but we do expect there will be rate reductions in 2024 going into 2025. And I'll get into more in 2025 when we talk a bit further. But we, we see that it is going to happen. And you look at it and you say, it, it, it is going to happen. It's clear that the economy is slowing. Uh, there's no question at all. The latest October annual inflation data, we're at 3.2%. You know, in June of 2022, we were at 9.1%. And it's been coming down concurrently. You know, the core PCE price index, which is the Fed's golden standard, is now down to 3.5. That continues to reduce. You know, in June, it was 4.28, rounded up to 4.3. So we're getting this gradual slowing of the economy, which is good. Unemployment has remained relatively stable. The one area which we're paying a good bit of attention to is Unemployment rate has stayed relatively low and because the participation rate hasn't spiked back up. But one indicator we're watching is the jobless claims as of November 11th were 1.84 million. And that is uh, up from November of 2022 from 1.55 million. So we're watching that, that jobless claims number, if it continues to tick up, that is a good indicator the economy is going to continue to slow. And that will take some pressure off of also the treasury yields, which have been bouncing around the 10-year treasury yield. It was over 5%. It's come back down. And that is a further indicator that there's an expectation of less inflation going forward. So I wish it was very simple to say it's one or two factors, but I like Chairman Powell's analogy that he uses, and he says, and I think this is very appropriate, 
were navigating by the stars underneath cloudy skies. And I say to myself and you know, kid with people, we just don't know how cloudy it's going to be for the future. And hopefully the clouds dissipate and we move to a more favorable environment more quickly. But that's where we see rates for 2023 into 2024. Made by bankers for bankers, Vertical IQ is your trusted source for reliable, convenient, and focused industry intelligence, helping your team save time, boost sales, and gain a competitive edge. Learn more at verticaliq.com. Interesting. And you mentioned that the economy is starting to slow down. Now, here's the problem. Um, I'm a bank. I want to grow. The economy's slowing down. So let's get into growth. Let's talk about something positive. Where do you see the growth will come from in 2024, not only from an industry perspective, but from a banking perspective, Bill, because you see it from both sides of the table? Yes. So I have been fascinated by one chart that the St. Louis Fed puts out, Jack, since the first time I saw it. And I was a baby in this business. And it goes back close to 30 years. now. And that chart shows, I'll call it two uh two hills, if you will. And it's from 1948, measured up to the present time. And that shows GDP growth. And so it ebbs and flows over, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And it shows bank loan demand. And in most cases, loan demand equates to commercial industrial loan demand. And if you look since 1948 until present time, there is at various times about quarter to an eighth of an inch difference below where GDP goes. So I start with, it's just a fact of life that as an industry, it is almost impossible on a sustained basis for us to outgrow GDP. And so you start there and you'd say, okay, the industry will grow at something equating to GDP. When you look at 2023, we are expected to finish the year with an overall growth rate, which was 5.2% for the third quarter. But for the year, we're expecting something of the order of 23 to 2.4%. For next year, the GDP growth, uh, TD Economics is forecasting 1.3. I've seen that range up to 1.5%. No question it's going to slow. So to the heart of your question, as a banker, I'm charged, my, my budget goals go up. Uh, there's an expectation of earnings growth for my, my bank. So where does that growth come from? Well, I think it's, it's a really fair question. So one of the things in the last five to seven years I've gotten very focused on, and it's a great proxy to be able to look at where our, our client segments have opportunity. Uh, FactSet is uh, an organization that focuses on earnings from publicly traded companies. And Jack, I, many of my peers say to me, well, Bill, I don't bank publicly traded companies. And I use it as a proxy. And if you're, if you're public, if you have an understanding where the publicly traded markets are going, there's an extrapolation within reason that applies to privately held companies. So when I look at 2024, you know, the S&P 500 earnings growth for 2024, and this is from the December 1st issue of FACSA, is projected to grow 
4% next year. That's pretty strong growth when you look at it. When you look at that's revenue growth. When uh, oh, Pardon me, I misspoke. I need to back up. That is actually earnings growth. Revenue growth next year will be 5.5%. The earnings growth is 11%. So companies are certainly focused on more output from less in going forward. And that's what the driver is. So efficiency initiatives, AI initiatives, just being smarter and being more efficient to grow. When you look at the, there's 11 industry segments that they track. Jack, when you look at their consumer discretionary, consumer services, healthcare, industrials, utilities, consumer staples, materials, and real estate's in there. Every one of those segments next year from a revenue standpoint, it's projected to grow two to 9%. And technology and healthcare are the big growers at the upper end of that. And you've got materials at the lower end at the 2%. When you look at the earnings growth, same thing. Healthcare and commercial services are at the upper end of that spectrum. And you've got materials at the lower end of that spectrum. So there is no question that there's opportunities to, to grow in certain segments like next year. You know, when I look more specifically at where that growth will come, you take that and put it in the context of where the present economy is. And as interest rates begin to come down, the natural question evolves, what industries do well in, in a declining interest rate environment? So which ones are non-sensitive to interest rate changes. Well, number one would be construction and construction trades, manufacturing. Technology continues to boom, but information technology and artificial intelligence is right at the top of that, making those investments. Uh, one I know from your podcast that your guests focus on, one that I believe is uh, doesn't get enough attention with specifics is data analytics, overused word, but the data analytics will continue to evolve into the future uh, and to become more useful. Uh, healthcare services, and that's quite easy, both from a standpoint of declining interest rates and just the demographic profile of the United States uh, continues, uh, we, we, we get aged. And then personal services, uh, as, as interest rates come down, you look at leisure, you look at travel, you look at things related to that uh, with more discretionary income borrowing, and we're not expecting a recession. We are in the camp at this time, based on what we see today, that we should achieve a soft landing and understanding that there should be higher levels of discretionary income as we look to the future. Well, let, let, let me throw another monkey wrench into this. Um, 2024, is one of those unique years in that it's an election year. So how does that all play into this, Bill? Well, history is the best guide. So the Fed has to be positive, but can't tip the scales one way or the other. And that's exactly why we're looking at a third quarter reduction in rates. And as I said earlier, 50 basis points is are projected. And then the fourth quarter, which is that 
September to December period, which encompasses the election, we're anticipating that that second rate cut will come after the election so the Fed can achieve its long-stated goal not to be perceived to be political, not perceived to be favoring one party versus the other. And so I, I expect we will get those two rate cuts, but the timing of the second rate cut will follow the election. And I, I don't have at the moment the 2024 Fed schedule, but I'm expecting there will be at least one meeting between uh, after the election to the end of the year, and there's very likely to be two meetings if it follows a historic schedule. All right. Let's peel the onion back even further. You do an amazing uh, newsletter called the CFO Newsletter, and I want to talk about it uh, Thank at, at the end of the show. In your most recent edition, one of the other things you talked about is geopolitical instability. So you've got you've got the Fed trying to bring rates down. You've got two candidates, whoever they are, going to run for president, make all kinds of promises that they probably won't keep. But yet you've got certain things that are really out of our control. You know, when I was a baby banker, um, the, the world was smaller um, and, and it was sort of the United States of America with a few allies. Now the world is is everywhere. Uh, and it, it's affect it, geopolitical challenges affect us very personally and very, very uh, importantly, economically. So you, you had a really good analysis of that in your newsletter, Bill. Talk about geopolitical instability. Well, so as we are having this conversation today, Jack, unfortunately, we've got a terrible situation that's evolved uh, between Israel and Hamas. Uh, we have a continuing war with uh, so Russia and Ukraine that continues to grind on. Uh, not a, neither of those are good, and my heart goes out to all the people who are affected by that. It's just a bad, bad situation. Uh, what becomes concerning, as bad as it is today, does it have the potential, either of them, and I would say for the moment, potentially the Israel-Hamas situation, I think offers the greater uncertainty as to whether it will grow larger. And I'm not going to try to anticipate that. But if it were to grow larger, and one of the focal areas in that part of the world becomes the Strait of Hormuz, and 20% of the world's oil flows through the Strait of Hormuz. And if there should be some disruption, uh, oil prices have been hovering below $100 a barrel. But if the, there would be a disruption, I've read from TD Economics and others, uh, you begin to think in terms of a significant escalation and significant, I would say, the lower end would be a 20% increase in oil prices, pushing it up over $120 a barrel. Uh, I hope that is not the case. I hope this is an idle conversation uh, and we make this an academic exercise. But if in fact there would be a significant escalation in oil prices, that could change the outlook for next year. If there were be uh, some interruption, not only increase, but interruption in oil flowing for the Strait of Hormuz, that could change the economic outlook. Again, I hope 
None of those are the reality that we face, but we're paying a great deal of attention. That is a real wild card to the present optimism we have that rates will come down in 2024. Uh, I think I've had the question directed to me, if there would be some disruption in the oil, the Fed may have to change its stance and move more aggressively to reduce rates quicker in order to false forestall the potential impact of that and avoid a, a recession. Uh, but at, at the moment, you know, that is something we're watching and watching closely and certainly hoping there's nothing of that nature that materializes. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? How how when you were a baby banker and I was a baby banker, you looked at financial statements and you just said, are they going to pay me back or are they not? Now, and as you've grown into a, a larger role in a, at a larger bank, there's so many factors that, that come into this. Uh, and that's where you have to have a good analytical brain. Well, one of the things I'd like to talk about around going forward is a subject that um, a lot of bankers don't want to talk about, but it's the, it's one of the uh, one of those elephants in the room, and that's commercial real estate. Um, you know, as these leases start coming due in the larger cities, there could be some challenges there. Um, and I know you probably won't want to talk about anything specific, and I respect that. But in general, talk about commercial real estate and where that's all headed. Well, I I look at Jack, and it's important. So let me. Anticipating this was a topic, it is important to our industry, and it's important not only to large banks, but small banks. So if I could frame this a little bit, and this data comes out of the current Federal Reserve H8 report, which has been around forever. So when you look at 2024 and beyond, and you look at where real estate fits in, so Year-to-date, CNI loan growth for small banks, and the Fed's definition of that is everyone outside of the top 25. And so CNI loan growth this year was down 2.9% for small banks and was down 13 basis points for the large banks. And for the industry, the two numbers average out at 1.03 based on the holding size of the loans. Made by bankers for bankers, Vertical IQ is your trusted source for reliable, convenient, and focused industry intelligence, helping your team save time, boost sales, and gain a competitive edge. Learn more at verticaliq.com. When you look at commercial real estate, commercial real estate for small banks, again, everybody but the top 25, was up 9.14% in 2023. And in the top 25, the large banks is down a half a percent in the, so the industry average for real estate comes to be 5.94, but it's really concentrated as the engine for the small bank community. So when you talk about commercial real estate, I really believe this is where an analysis of the components really becomes critical. So what people begin to talk about when they talk about big cities is its office. But I look at office is a component, warehouse is a component, multifamily is a component, and single family is a component. And if you take out single family to get to the definition of commercial real estate, 
you get the first three as a general rule of thumb. And so I look at it, there's no question, uh, given the advent in technology and the effect of the pandemic, that more people are working from home and are not in the office either at all or less frequently, pardon me, less frequently than they were pre-pandemic. There's no question about that, that more, more people are telecommuting or working in the office. So there's less need for central business district real estate than there was before. And it is going to be a challenge of, of how that real estate is repurposed. And can it be used for housing? And that's easier said than done in some of the buildings, particularly ones that are not uh, of recent vintage to get utilities and subdivided in that. So commercial real estate with specifically in the office segment is an industry challenge. And it will be for the next several years. Uh, when you look at, out on the horizon, the number of uh, big office buildings that come up for maturity and to be uh, renewed are going to be over the next three to four years is a significant problem. By some estimates, and from data that I got from the Federal Reserve of St. Louis, that number, depending on what year, if it's three years or four years, is be two to three billion dollars in maturing loans. So there's no question the industry is going to have to digest that. We're going to have to dust off some habits we learned in 2007. And in my case, and what I learned in you know 1995, uh, early in my career, uh, when I, I wore a workout hat. And we're going to have to figure out uh, how do we blend and extend? How do we extend to give people more time to repurpose? Uh, and it's it's going to be a new chapter in how we work through a, an industry challenge. I look at residential real estate has really been stymied because interest rates are have been elevated now since March of last year. Uh, there's not a great deal of new construction that's gone on. So there are construction in process where permits were issued uh, and, and construction financing was in place. That's working its way through, but new construction because of increased interest rates have really diminished the amount of residential construction that's going on, multifamily construction that's going on. So as rates come down, there will be an opportunity there. Uh, commercial space and particularly warehousing in commercial uh, with the change in the retailing environment, more online sales, and that need to be able to make that last mile connection for faster deliveries, uh, that is continues to offer opportunity. But Jack, it's not as robust as it was three, four years ago. I think we've seen the peak in terms of retail sales growth uh, and the need to have that warehousing space to, for in, imminent or instant delivery. Uh, it will continue to grow, repositioning, but it's not going to be the boom that it was. But we do look at there's opportunity in real estate as rates begin to come down. And that will just be, I'll say, resonant to 2024. It'll happen in 2024, 2025, 2026. Uh, and the fact that rates are coming down uh, may offer you know, a little bit of a lifeline in some cases to some of those loans that are maturing, but I don't want to mischaracterize it or give the audience a false sense. It's not 
the savior. The banking industry is going to have to work through this issue of office real estate, and it's going to be a challenging chapter in our history. My daughter, Erin, who you've met, uh, loves startup companies. And um, one of the ways startups get funded is through venture capital. Um, where do you see, given all the challenges economically, where's venture capital headed in 2024 and beyond? Well, I'll put that, Jack, in a little broader context. As you're aware, I write a piece quarterly, which is a private equity market outlook. And it's something I pay a great deal of attention to because it's a, a focal piece for us. But to put it, where are we today overall? And you look at sponsor activity, and that includes venture capital. So private equity sponsor activity year to date, and we won't get into the number of transactions, but the number of deals was down 28%. And the value of those deals is down, and I'm rounding up 25%. Uh, but there is $1.4 trillion in seed capital that private equity firms hold. And part of the dilemma that we've experienced in 2022 into 2023, and which has really caused that activity to halt, is interest rates. So when you look at the cost of capital and the discount rate they have to apply as they look at opportunities uh, with interest rates significantly higher than they were in 2020, 2021, deal activity has come to a real slowdown. And I stress it has come to a slowdown, but it hasn't stopped. I expect as rates can begin to diminish, and you have continued better alignment between what buyers are willing to pay and sellers are willing to accept. And we've had uh, an improving but still imbalanced market, Jack, for the last, I would say, 15, 18 months. And you know, no seller wants to sell at the bottom of the market, and no credible buyer, experienced buyer, wants to overpay based on where earnings are projected to go. So you've had uh, a cooling off period, if I can use that phrase. I fully expect as rates begin to diminish and there's better alignment between earnings outlooks and what buyers can determine is revenue certainty, EBITDA certainty, opportunity certainty as you look forward. Uh, I almost use it for a phrase that I've often heard. It's a coiled spring. And that spring is waiting to be let go in a very positive way. So the outlook is both for venture capital, the M&A market, deal activity in the private equity market is going to emerge and be positive later in 2024 into 2025. And if the outlook remains stable into 2026. And you know, why is that important if you're a banker and you look at the world's changed so much, private equity has always been an element. It's been in existence 50, 60, 70 years. So it's not new. But when you look today, there are more 
privately held companies by private equity firms than there are public firms by a ratio, depending on where you cut off, of two to three times. And so if you're, you're a banker and you're looking for opportunity, you want to be very much aware of what's going on in the private equity market and what's emerging for opportunity there, whether it be refinance or M&A activity. And I pay tremendous attention. Uh, M&A activity, as I write about, uh, has largely stalled, but it is not stalled in the add-on market. The average the median deal size, I'll be specific, the median deal size in the M&A markets is now $50 million for an add-on tra transaction. That's certainly beyond the traditional small business market, but for middle market companies and larger companies that are looking for opportunity, it, it offers a tremendous opportunity to go deeper in an industry, to go into a new industry uh, in a way that you don't have to risk. In many cases, the amount of financing because of the amount of liquidity private equity firms have and U.S. corporations have, by some estimates, $4 trillion is a number that comes up with regularity of cash on their balance sheets. They can digest those without needing financing or very little financing. So I expect very positive, both in the venture capital market over the next 12, 18, 24 months to reemerge, as well as in the private equity markets and specifically in the M&A portion of that will reemerge very, very clearly. Thanks for listening to this episode of Jack Rads with Modern Bankers with Bill Fink. Part two of Bill's comments can be heard at noon Eastern time on January 3rd, 2024. This and every program is brought to you by our friends at RELPRO and Vertical IQ. Join us next time for more special guests bringing you marketing, sales, and leadership insights, as well as ideas that will provide your bank or credit union that competitive edge you need to succeed. Now, don't forget this LinkedIn Live show is also a podcast. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Jack Rants with Modern Bankers and leave us a review. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and others. Visit our website too, themodernbanker.com for more information. And don't forget to sign up for our free public library at themodernbanker.com slash public library. And also in 2024 and every year, make today and every day a great client day.